Okay. Today we have Ruben R. Ruben, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Of it's course. Been- yeah. Your, uh, your band, John Motors, the new record horsepower is fantastic. You're a great organ player. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. I mean, I'm in a small field here. I've got to say so, uh, but it's high praise nonetheless. Thank you. Yeah. So what part of the UK are you from? So I'm from London. I grew up in Norfolk, which is about a hundred miles away from where I am now. But, uh, yeah, so grew up in the countryside and then like a lot of musicians, uh, made my way here. What is the music scene like there? Incredibly diverse. And it's always surprising me with, um, with sort of the state it's in, um, you know, when I, when I was growing up, um, you know, I had, I had certain, um, I guess misconceptions about what the music scene was like. It's, it's safe to say you can, you, you, you can, you can judge, um, the music scene of the UK based largely on the music scene in London, obviously as it's the capital, but you know, the music that you get, um, the music scene you get in, in, you know, in the countryside or in sort of the secondary or tertiary cities around the country is just so different to what it's like in London. London really benefits from, um, you know, it, it benefits from all the different cultures that are just coming into it. And it's just, it's just a massive breeding ground for, for new genres that just pop up everywhere. It's, it's phenomenal. So as far as the music that I've been trained in jazz, you know, I, before I moved to London, I thought it was all, you know, four, four swing everywhere and a bunch of, uh, you know, um, fifties, New York style jazz bands. And then I got here and I was, I was disappointed at first. I've embraced it now, but it's, it's a shock to the system. How, uh, yeah. How things change so quickly here. Why were you disappointed? What was it like when you first got there versus how you imagined it? Well, because I, um, so before I moved to London for two years, I was just playing, I was playing jazz, um, in my local city at the time, which was Norwich. And, um, all I did was swing like, um, you know, great American songbook standards, you know, just from all the, all the, you know, great Broadway shows and things like that. Playing a lot of old school piano. I just assumed that 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 sort of thing just, just stayed. I didn't, I didn't think that jazz had evolved beyond that I wasn't aware of any evolution beyond that and so when I got to London and found that people were playing you know variants of hip-hop and calling it jazz that really caught me off guard I was yeah disappointed at first but then I mean that you know how how can you be disappointed for long it's 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 just too exciting (laughs) you you can't hang around on it like that so is it bands like bad bad not good do you know them yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's badass. Yeah. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. always so curious as a musician, what, what it's like to be a gigging musician in other parts of the world. Cause yeah, you know, I've, I was gonna, I was gonna wonder the same thing about what it's like in the States. You know, I was, I was really, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I live in Nashville, so it's a little bit different yeah. of a story than it is everywhere else in the U S cause like you yeah. go, to downtown Nashville, there's this, this one street called Broadway and it's mm-hmm. five blocks of bars, multiple floors. Every floor has a band. So you yeah. can be a full-time gigging musician here and you make good money. You're, you're playing like 
Jesse's girl and you're playing sweet home Alabama and all right. of that, which I, I'm not throwing any shade at any of that, but that's, it's like the, uh, the Mickey mouse version of the music industry here. It's, it's very okay. touristy, uh, which it gives a lot of my friends the ability to make money as a musician, which is great. But the, like, there's a little bit of a jazz scene here. I haven't really gotten into it yet. Uh, I'm a bass player. I love, love, love jazz, but it, it's like, you almost have to unlearn some of the qualities that you've already learned as a musician to be able to play your yeah, that's absolutely. For me, it's like breaking bad habits. You know what I mean? As a player. Yeah. Um, or not even necessarily breaking bad habits. It's just sharpening other tools that I'm weak at. Cause I didn't know how to read music until I moved to Nashville you ne- you don't even have to know how to read music in Nashville. Like no one reads music here. I just did it on my own accord for the challenge. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. Like there's, there's a lot of uh, singer songwriters that are really just trying to be either Taylor Swift or John Mayer. Um, right. It kind of the, the white basic kind of music. There's a big, I can relate to that hair. There's, there's plenty really? of that hair. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, so do you guys have like um, writers rounds there where there's like four or five different songwriters on a stage and they each play a song and take turns or how does that work? Um, we have, we have open mics here. I don't know if that's much of a thing there, but where, yeah, that's kind of the testing ground for a lot of singer songwriters. It's not anything that I've ever been to, to actually um, play on, but yeah, that's, that happens quite a lot. It's interesting what you said about unlearning things. The, the, the great thing about uh, that, that I found, especially with the music that I'm playing in, in John Motors now is that, you know, I've spent ages learning music since, since I was five. And it, the, the great thing is like learning all of these rules in music only to deliberately ignore them. There's some, there's, I feel like there's still something essential about it. It's like, you still need to know the rules just so that you can, you know, chuck them Break away, them. but at least it's yeah. a conscious decision, you know? So, yeah. Oh yeah. You know, having, sure. having to cast aside, having to cast aside all this sort of finesse that I learned in music just to, just to play basic, you know, hard hitting grooves. Fine. That's great. So you start, did you start off as a jazz musician or were you into classical first? So I, um, I started playing piano when I was five and cello when I was six and that was classical right up until I was 18. Um, and then when I hit 18, I just realized I wasn't good enough to take it all the way classical. And I, I'd never been sort of emotionally invested in it anyway. You know, I was super lazy. I didn't practice. I didn't, I didn't really enjoy it. it I was taking it from the sort of from, from the wrong, wrong direction, I guess. It was like working towards exams and competitions and stuff like that. I look back at it now and I'm like, God, I don't know how I got through that. Cause it's just like, I, I don't know how, how people are, how people are supposed to enjoy music like that. So then when I found jazz and got into that, I think it really just, yeah, boosted me so much just in enjoying what I was doing. When did you discover jazz? Was that when you were 18? Is that when you made the transition? I guess when I was 16, I sort of started getting into it a bit. My dad, who was a really phenomenal um, classical cellist for many years, he got into jazz a bit. 
And he had this record um, by Oscar Peterson, who was a really top jazz pianist. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, phenomenal. So good. And of course, he was classically trained as well. So he, he, had, all the, he had all the chops there and translated that into just phenomenal flowing jazz. And so I got into him a bit. And then, yeah, I just knew a few other people at, at college and, um, yeah, just like in my village, even one or two who just, um, yeah, like the music. I don't really remember picking, I don't remember a specific day when I suddenly was like, oh, jazz is now my thing. It just really came in naturally. Well, it gets to a point once you are able to gig and you're able to play and you're getting hired and all of that, uh, at least it did for me where I'm still in this transition where I was like, I don't necessarily want to keep doing the gigs I was doing anymore as much fun as it was, because as a player, I want to keep growing. You know what I mean? I want to, I want to find out what the, the peaks of my ability are and jazz is a great way to do that. Um, I'm, I'm really go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I was, I was just, I was just going to say that, that, you know, jazz is like the, the, there is no peak to it. It's like, you know, you can, you can, you can get as far as you think you could possibly go in some area of, of jazz, but then you can always just improve yourself in another way or just, or just move on to a different branch of jazz or a different branch of music altogether. The only problem with that is there's there's a payoff to it which is that you never you can often feel like you're never quite you know good enough for yourself it's it's kind of hard to feel like you've justified feeling good about what you've played you know that's kind of the the curse with improvisation so you know you might look at it you might look back on it you know six months or a year later and think okay it was good but yeah, I I think I came off the bandstand maybe two times in seven years, feeling like I'd actually uh, yeah accomplished what I wanted to. So it's a tough payoff, I gotta say. So are there a bunch of clubs around London that you guys regularly play at? Do you play with other artists? Yeah, so we found ourselves attracted to other funk bands. Funk isn't a massive thing in the UK, not compared to the states. It never really. It, it it was never really developed here, you know. It it just it just steals from uh, what the Americans did. So the the few funk bands here that that are actually sort of you know creative funk bands that aren't just um, imitators. We we find ourselves gravitating to them quite a lot. And um, so yeah, there's there's a couple of really phenomenal groups we've we've played alongside there's a there's a group called mutnik that are like us they're like a, a keyboard based um funk trio it's like keyboard sax and drums they're really good um and then there's this uh saxophone player based in bristol called jack mack we've played along his alongside his band as well so and both times um that was at a place in soho in london called the spice of life it's like this brilliant basement bar that, that sort of puts on variety music nights um, sort of every every couple of weeks, I, I guess. And yeah, that, that was really where we cut our teeth as a band. It was the second gig we ever did um, was there. Um, and that was where we first kind of realized actually we're onto something that's, you know, that grabs people by the horns, you know, and uh, gets, gets them fired up. 
Um, so yeah, the, the spice of life in Soho is really our, uh, really our home, home venue right now. I watched a video of you guys playing there. The guitar player's great. The drummer's great. Uh, oh, what yeah. are their names? Yeah, I should have given them credit from the get-go. Um, so, so the guitarist is uh, called Izzy Stevens. Um, by the way, both of the guys um, studied with me at Middlesex Union. We all studied jazz. Um, and so he doesn't play a whole lot of jazz anymore, but he, he was, it was him who I started the band with um, in 2020, we just, um, you know, we'd been, we'd been friends for a while and we started hanging out again, um, in 2020 and we were like, screw it. We, we should, uh, you know, we, we'd both become a little bit distant from jazz. Just, I, I sort of run out of steam a little bit, um, had, had worked a bit too much on it and yeah, hit a bit of a dead end. And so we both were like, well, we know we're into this, but neither of us had really played it much before. So Started it with him, and then the drummer, whose name is Andreas Sharkas, he's from Rhodes, Greece, um, the powerhouse of the band. And you can probably tell from videos he's the one who uh, lets go the most. You know, he, he really gets it, gets it all fired up. So, um, yeah, I'd I'd played with him um, in sort of jazz trios, you know, before. And um, then we'd sort of stop playing together for a while. Hadn't spoken for a bit. But, yeah, the moment the three of us got in a room, it, it was immediately evident. We had the same goals. We had the same ideas of what would make this music really, really tick. And so perfect match. And I, I can't give them enough credit for, you know, putting putting heart and soul into the tunes uh, that I've brought to them. Um, you know, every every time, every rehearsal, it's like, yeah, I mean, I write it with them in mind, but they never let me down. Yeah, with how they how they just develop the music um, with me, it's phenomenal. Well, it's interesting um, the relationship between you and the bass player as far the the drummer as far as the the rhythm section goes, because you're playing mm -hmm. bass with your feet, right? Yeah, mostly left hand. The feet either the feet can replace the left hand it's a tough one though you know yeah, i'm still it seems hard down. it's so hard it's really difficult but often often the feet will just double the left hand it's like a you get the percussion of a of a bass guitar if you do that and on the most recent record horsepower are you playing left hand on that or did you guys have a bass player in the studio no that's just all my left hand <laughs> nice it <laughs> sounds good dude it sounds Thank fucking you. great it's on, honestly, I don't know how it, it came about because when I was learning classically, um, my teacher would always just like give me so much grief because they were like, your left hand stains. It, it's like so weak, you know, and I never practiced it properly. I never did the technique properly. And, you know, um, actual piano players will notice my wrists are always like really, um, really low, really neutral. So it doesn't, um, it doesn't lend itself to being very percussive and accurate, but somehow I just flap my left hand around and it, and it works. I think I honestly think I got lucky. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was listening to, to the music, I was trying to figure out whether or not it was a bass player because some of the lines you were actually playing, like as a bass player, as a snob uh, of bass, mm -hmm. I was like, this is pretty fucking good. And I was curious to, to see if it was you with a left hand or you guys hired someone out. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a bass player as well. Oh, that are helps. you? Okay. So yeah. you get I mean, the, the concept of it. 
Yeah, I do. And I've already, I've always, I've always had an ear for good bass lines anyway. Like, you know, when I, and it, it's always the subtle things, it's just the, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take much for a bass part to really stand out. You know, it really doesn't take much. I mean, you, you've essentially got, um, it, I mean, when I was first learning bass for, for playing jazz, it, it was really a case of I had one job, which was just rhythmic, right? It, you, you know, playing upright bass, it's mostly mostly just about the time feel of it. So then adding just little subtle nuances into what you're doing, like it, I, I just feel like that's always meant a lot to me just because I've almost starved myself of, uh, you know, being interesting in baselines if if that makes any sense but yeah no for sure yeah i mean the, the kind of music you guys are playing it, it really reminds me a lot we were kind of talking beforehand of like booker t or even soul live lettuce those kind of uh funk yeah. and soul acts so it's yeah. like you went from you were kind of burned out on jazz and then you went to soul which in a lot of ways is the exact opposite of jazz yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. Purely about feel and emotion. Not saying jazz isn't about that also, but sure. it's so much less about chops and it's really about holding back as a player. But you're playing in particular, you play with a great feel, but because you're an experienced player and a, a jazz player, you can get kind of riffy and fancy with the the notes. I like I love it when yeah. you and the guitar player are doubling lines and shit like That's that. Great. It sounds great. It's it's really fun, but you, you're totally right, though. I mean, the the way that jazz tends to get to um, the the way that jazz tends to sort of get to its message is really a roundabout way. You know, there's a lot of melody and harmony involved. That you know, it, it, it's it's kind of like it's all a bunch of cryptic messages, whereas the message with this band couldn't be clearer. And you know, with a lot of with a lot of soul music, and the one of the bands that we really um, take uh, inspiration from, um, we we don't take inspiration from many bands, to be honest, overtly. But one of them is um, Scary Goldings. Don't know if you heard of them. They're so they're basically an offshoot of Scary Pockets, which is a band I know Scary got, Pockets. Uh, yeah, you know Scary Pockets. Yeah, YouTube band. Yeah, well, they basically teamed up with Larry Goldings, who's one of the best organists in the world, phenomenal player, phenomenal pianist, keyboard player, like just uh, unbelievable. And he, um, so they, they sort of got, I guess, four or five of them, um, just doing, you know, pretty, you know, pretty minimalist funk. Um, but yeah, the, the way they, um, you know, he's, he's one of the best jazz players in the world and the way he just simplifies everything. And it's just all, everything he plays means something and is subtle and there's hardly any, um, harmonic, uh, sophistication there. It's all, you know, it's all basic funk language, but it's just all about where you put it, where you land it. And it just, it just makes everything so much clearer and it's so much more accessible. Are you a Wolfpack fan? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wolfpack is so unbelievable. Good. Yeah. Those guys, did you see, they, they did a gig not too long ago. It might've been like a month or two ago. And apparently they'd like barely played for like a couple of years and they just like went out on stage in a bunch of bathrobes and just like demolished this set perfectly. They're, 
I've, I saw clips from it. They're, they're just all around ridiculous players in the way they run their, their business. Cause so much of it, it's like the brainchild of Jack Stratton, but it's, yeah. they they're active for like a month, a year touring. And when they're like not playing shows, they'll, they'll plan like recording studio time in that one month because they're all such in-demand yeah. players now. Yeah, that's it. it. It's unbelievable. I don't know. I don't know how they did it because, you know, you, you can see the first recording session they did. It's not, it's not released on their YouTube. It's someone else's YouTube from like 2011. And there's not really that much to them. Like, you know, it's pretty basic stuff. I mean, they're tight, but it's nothing that would catch, you know, the imagination at all. And some, somehow, you know, it go forward five years from that. And suddenly they're like all, you know, production whiz brains, you know, um, what's, what's his name? The bassist, Joe Dart, you know, Joe one Dart. of the best bassists in the world. Crazy. Yeah. Theo Katzman, the, one of the most wicked voices you'll hear. Yeah. Unbelievable. And the thing is, they're all like multi-instrumentalists and they all can just like thrash these tunes out. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, they really, yeah, their evolution has been scary. Uh, Corey Wong is supposed to be coming through Nashville. I think sometime next year with Victor Wooten. No way. Yeah. Yeah. So Victor (laughs) Wooten, he, he lives in Nashville. I, I've never personally seen him with, with my own eyes, but there's like 10 Wooten brothers and they all live in Nashville and they all play (laughs) shows together. But that's like one of the benefits of being in this city. Like I can just go out on a random Tuesday night and see someone who would normally pack out theaters or arenas and they're just riffing jamming. Yeah. That's so cool. Honestly. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. I'm, I'm so interested in, uh, in hearing more about, the the music scene in london like are you guys is do you have to have like a designated rehearsal space so do you live in like shoebox apartments or are you able to like rent houses and rehearse there well we're kind of lucky first of all i still work for middlesex uni so i get in you know there to rehearse for free right now which is super lucky because a lot of people i mean it makes me kind of sick to think you know, there are bands out there that, you know, you know, barely earn the scraps they shit on, on the gigs and they spend most of it on rehearsal rooms. It's, it's so difficult to, you know, get people together to play music. It's one of the things that's really blessed this band is that, you know, there's only three of us, so it's easy to get us together. We've got free rehearsal space and, you know, the three of us are all willing to put aside our free time and somehow have the same kind of free time at the right times to keep it together. We're, we're super lucky like that. It, it can be it can be really difficult. And, yeah, if you're going to be a full time musician living out of a shoebox is uh, is definitely uh, on, on the cards as well. It's uh, it's really it's a really tough one. And it's, it's becoming harder cost of living. Um here i don't know if you've heard it's just going through the roof yeah so yeah yeah it's, it's the know. same same thing kind of here like when i first moved to nashville th- there's still cheap places that you can find it's like six uh, six hundred like when i first moved here i was renting a room in a house for like six hundred dollars and i have cheap pretty cheap rent 
Uh, luckily, because like I have a network of people that I know, so it's way easier. But someone new moving here, you're looking at like twelve hundred or fourteen hundred dollars US to, to get a decent, like an okay apartment. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. As well, it's just yeah. I mean, it it makes you it makes you scared to move in case in case you've actually got a sweeter deal than you uh, think you've got. Yeah, it's um, it's it's really tough. Although it always amazes me how how um, resilient some musicians are, or just the music industry in general. I feel like we just take hit after hit, <laughs> and somehow people you know still stick with it, still still love it enough to just keep going. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's like people, I drive for Uber and Lyft here. So people all the time that come from out of town, they ask me about being a musician and what it's like. And they're like, oh, it must be so hard. And it's like, yeah, to a certain degree it is. But also I can't imagine my life being any other way and not being trying to be like a, a player. You know, it's just like over the course of the past five years I've probably played with at least four or five different artists like original artists because over here there's a section of town called East Nashville and that's kind of like the hip trendy cool spot where all the the rock bands are so I got hired out a lot by different people over there and it's super fun um but yeah just like someone who's coming to a new place and you're a musician I was, I feel like I was in a good position when I first moved here because Nashville was just really starting to pop off. You know what I mean? It wasn't like now it's bachelorette central. People are coming from all over to visit. Nice. Yeah. It's a beautiful city. I've only been there once, but I've been here before. Yeah. I love Nashville though. One place I really want to go back to. I mean, I mean, Tennessee in general, I loved, um, most of my family are from Pennsylvania, um, or at least most of my American family are. But yeah, I've I've gone over a couple of times just with a friend to do road trips. Nashville was amazing. We didn't spend enough time there. I was absolutely blown away. I guess we were on Broadway because yeah. we we um, from like twelve noon when we were there. There were just bands constantly, every single place. Yeah. It was crazy. It was like it was like we couldn't we couldn't even pick one to go to. We just we just you know went from one to the next it was it was just crazy and it was it was all just really fun music because obviously it was pretty pretty alien to us um english guys <laughs> what it was so we, we were just we were just completely blown away by it such a good city i can't wait to go back whenever i get the chance yeah no it, it it's great did you go to memphis i did yeah yeah and got a very different impression of it but then again we didn't consult anybody when going to either of these places. So yeah. I'd have just done it wrong, but considering Memphis is, you know, like we went to Beale street, for example. Yes. You know, the, what is it? Like the, the birthplace of the blues or is it? I can't remember what they mm-hmm. call, call it, but, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, you know, a, a cultural landmark and the big difference you know, just the, the it, it was so different the, between um, between Nashville and Memphis. Just how you know Nashville seemed to have really benefited from from that. It seemed to really benefit from being kind of a cultural capital, and Memphis just didn't seem to have that. It, it made me wonder, at, like, how much that really mattered at all. Um, well, it was, it was nice. Memphis was what, what do you think of Memphis? 
a big deal back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. Now it's, it's kind of similar to the way that Detroit was Detroit's coming back a little bit, but it's almost like an American ruin. You know what I mean? Right. Where it's kind of falling apart. Um, so much of the, the cultural sense of America and the fifties and the sixties came from Memphis, of course, with Elvis, mm-hmm. Johnny cash. And then you had stacks records there, which was right. Yeah. For, for funk, soul, R and B, all of that. Cool. Yeah. But, um, it's, it's kind of run down now. It's sad to see that's why I was curious to kind of see what your perspective was. Yeah. We, we really felt, yeah, we were just, it was, it was kind of, it was kind of sad even just because I think we were on such a high from Nashville. I think the next day we went to Memphis, I was like, okay, you know, more of the same. And it was, yeah, it just, it, it just wasn't, it was, it was a, yeah, it was a shame. Did you get to go to Saks Records? I didn't. I didn't. Oh man, it was Sax. whistle stuff. I'm sorry to say, we we yeah we weren't we weren't uh, we weren't hanging around too long. <laughs> yeah, Stax Records is 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 a cool spot. You go in there, um, which the, the original Stax Records they knocked down, but the actual record, recording studio it was an old movie theater that mm. they had. That's why that sign like out front, it looks like a, a movie theater. Cause that's what, what it was. So um, cool. and fucking, uh, Isaac Hayes, Cadillac is in there. It's like this green Cadillac and there's a sign with Isaac Hayes on it. And it says, don't touch my ride fool or something like that. Oh, that's so cool. You see, yeah. that's the thing I really, I really miss is that, you know, in this country, you know, especially in London, we just don't have that. We've got, Abbey Road. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's it. And and Abbey Road is now, you know, way more accessible. You know, loads of people record there. It's you know, um, and it you know, it it almost feels like a like a watered down version of itself. We don't really have I can't think of any other like iconic studios or anything like that that people could could like, you know could see a picture of and recognize or that, you know, are, are like iconic landmarks. We just don't really, we don't really have that in, in like in the form of recording studios or things yeah. like that, especially. But I, I feel like that's such a, that's such a cool thing. And I don't know why it, it just never, yeah, we never really had that. Here. So did you guys record a horsepower like at a home studio or what did you do for that? No, we were really lucky. Middlesex uni has, um, in the last few years, built a new recording studio. Um, that's like industry standard, really good, had, um, you know, uh, really good, uh, isolation, uh, booths and things like that. Um, and it's, it's a very dry studio, obviously not the best thing to record on. You know, it was, it, it's not, it's not tape, it's, you know, di- digital, but still, it was like a free studio that we could go into yeah. record. We could, we could go back into and record. We ended up um, doing an extra session in there. That was just really helpful to have. Um, but obviously nothing beats tape given the choice and unlimited resources. We would, yeah. uh, Tape's expensive. we wouldn't, tape. we wouldn't exactly. Yeah. But, but boy, does it pay for itself. It is so good. Like we, we, we were lucky enough to, get um asked to uh record three tracks on tape um for another uni in london just as part of one of their um recording seminars 
and they they've just let us have the tapes for free although um you know uh, you know they've digitized it but but yeah the the sound of the the tape saturation just you can't model that properly you know from a digital recording it just doesn't nothing quite quite beats it yeah i i think eventually technology will get to the point to where it sounds good at good but mm. right now i like things with music of course like things just grow and change as technology grows and change it, it like people yeah. you know sometimes I, I wonder and and maybe you can relate to this i wonder like i am so like anal when it comes to shit like that and i like everything to sound perfect and be perfect and yeah. everything but at the end of the day someone's just going to listen like on their cell phone on spotify right. yeah. you know what i mean but the actual art form and, and the creating, I feel like is a form of, uh, of meditation, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't know whether I'm a perfectionist or not in, in some ways I'm not because I feel like I naturally overlook a lot of imperfections in the music. It's just whether or not it sounds natural, you know, if, um, for, for example, there've, there've been some, you know, unbelievable things we've captured just on our phones in, in rehearsal rooms that I prefer over, you know, bits, even over bits of the album, just because it just sounds natural. The feel is there, the groove is there, but you know, I, I feel like sometimes a lot of the time that's more preferable to me than something that's been, you know, polished to death, but, or, or as, you know, had some kind of, you know, um, drop in take, you know, cut into it and you just know it's not legit. And for sure, I just, can't, I can't help but feel people pick up on that, even if they know nothing about the process. I don't know. I don't know why. So if anything, I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm like a perfectionist in, in, in a, in, in a natural sense, not in, not in the sense of, um, you know, uh, polishing everything. Oh, like the, the steely dance yeah. sense. Right. Yeah. It's an, it's an important thing with funk. There's a lot of funk bands out there who are incredibly clean and there's no, um, you, you feel like they're, they're clinging onto every single bit of the music and it's, you know, all really sanitized and, you know, that works, that works for them. And it, and some, some of it's really fun to listen to, but I feel like the, the best, um, way that funk, uh, the best form that funk can take is when it involves a pretty serious element of letting go. And, you know, you, you, you keep yourself to the confines of, of the groove, but other than that, you just let everything out the window. And I feel, I feel like that, yeah, that's just where so much of, of the fun can be had. You know, you look at, you look at James Brown, for example, the, the guy barely, um, you know, barely sung his tunes. <laughs> it's a lot of shouting and, uh, you know, doing strange things, but the band are tight as hell and that's all that matters, you know? If well, the, it's all, it's all can... feel uh, so much of the, of the funk and soul kind of genre. It's just purely about feeling the band being yeah. together. Um, so random fact about Nashville, there used to be a recording studio that they knocked down uh, pretty recently. I can't remember what the name of it was, but James Brown owned it for a little while and he recorded Sex Machine there. And he also recorded like Hot Pants there and Super Bad, I think. 
Nice. Um, but yeah, there, there's so much like random Nashville music history. Jimi Hendrix got his start here. He was in the army up at Fort Campbell and <laughs> he met Billy Cox here from band of gypsies. And yeah. that's, they, they like became friends. And I think Billy Cox still lives in Nashville, but, um, yeah, going back to what you were kind of saying about, uh, capturing the imperfection, I, I think it, uh, you have to really like, for me, I really like if I'm cutting something, doing like three or four takes of it. And then anything beyond that, I feel like it's the law of diminishing returns. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got that a lot on this, on this album. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure like for, for example, BSBL second track, I think that was probably take two on that one. There were, there were a few of them that were, that would take one. The final track, um, was definitely one take. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, unfortunately, sometimes I get stuck in a rut with this because I'll, you know, I'll get to, I'll get near the end of a recording session. There'll be just that one track left. And I keep screwing one bit of it up and it, you know, they, they have to be dragged out of the studio. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Stop sending us on another take. The, the, our first EP, um, Fuel the Groove, the last track on that was 13 takes. Um, and it was all me. I kept screwing up the bit at the end. It keeps changing key and everything. And in the end, in the end, the engineer, I, I just told him, you know, go, go make a coffee. Or maybe, maybe he took himself out to make a coffee and just left us rolling. It's like, okay, just iron this one out. <laughs> and then we finally got over it. But, um, yeah, for, for me, it's, it's either one, two or 13 takes. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, there are many different ways to skin a cat, right? Yeah, it works. It works. It works for some people. The, the main thing, the, the main thing we have to try and avoid is tiring ourselves out because the music is pretty, uh, pretty physical. So, um, we got, we got to look after Andreas more, more than anything. Cause, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's hitting pretty hard. Oh yeah. And you so, gotta have chops yeah, to play what you're playing. It does. It does get to a point where, um, yeah, we, we really, we really struggled in 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 the studio on horsepower by the end of the third day second day in the studio we were yeah completely spent so did you write out everything in advance and guys had been uh you guys had been basically gigging on the tunes or how did the the process for working on the album come about so pretty much the moment we released fuel the groove the ep in the middle of 2021 by the time we released it, I'd already had a couple of tunes written, and I was like, you know, guys, we we can do more than this. The, our um, our sound evolved really quickly after we recorded the EP. So by the time it came out, I was already pretty uncomfortable listening to it, and so Im- immediately things like um, I think the first tune I wrote on on horsepower was um, introducing the pit crew, and that was just a trio tune at the time. And we still have like phone recordings and gig tapes of us um, playing a lot of the tunes on horsepower in like really early form. And they, they, you know, the grooves there, but yeah, we, we really glossed them up a lot before we um, went into the studio. So I I think there was a period of about two or three months now, probably just two months where I wrote like eight of the tracks just like in my head, just walking around. That's where all of it gets written, really. 
in the shower, in the car. In bed, Do you write in that. bunches or is it something that you're consistently kind of doing? In bunches. I didn't write any tunes for about six months after we recorded Horsepower. Um, and I didn't feel like I could. I, I don't know why. I, I, well, I've always, my creativity has always been towards an end point somewhere. You know, it was the same with um, like university coursework, having to write a bunch of random pastiche stuff for that. It's like, you know, two days beforehand, you know, magically I can write all this stuff, you know, it's like diamonds under pressure, you know, it's that, that kind of deal. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, we're, once once we had the album recorded, I had no need to write any more tunes. Now I do. I've started writing again because, yeah, we need some new material. Have you guys had the chance to play throughout the rest of Europe yet? Is that something that you're looking at doing? No, we're really keen to, and chances will come. At the moment, what are we, end of September, so now's the time to be looking at um, festivals for next summer, getting uh, getting some of them in. So I reckon we'll uh, branch into Europe then. This summer was the first summer we'd actually been playing any festivals at all, you know, and just um, really getting um, regular gigs under our belt. So, yeah, we're really keen to do that. We'd absolutely love to get to the States. It's tough <laughs> for now. We've the, the biggest venture we made so far was um, playing at the Edinburgh Fringe. I don't know if you know what that is. No, it's I don't. Like, what is it? Basically, every August, um, Edinburgh in Scotland um, hosts, well, first of all, the Edinburgh Festival, which is, you know, well, self self explanatory. It's like, a, but it's like music, arts, the, the whole works. But the the festival, uh, the Edinburgh Fringe, or the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, basically takes over the whole city in the um, sort of. Uh, I think it's like three weeks um, at the end of August, and basically everything that could possibly pass as a venue in the city um, is just filled up uh, with. Um, music, theater, lots of comedy. And so it's just, it's a ton of small gigs, basically. It's the third most regular, it's the third most ticketed regular running event in the world behind the Olympics and the World Cup football. It sounds uh, similar to like South by Southwest in Austin that happens every Mm -hmm. year. Have you heard of South by Southwest? I have. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a bit like that, but I, I feel like it's, it, it's even more extreme. Like it the sounds whole city bigger than, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So I, I'd been there playing on a couple of shows or playing. Yeah. I'd, I'd played there on, um, for one show a few years ago and yeah, ever since I thought, yeah, get a band there, you know, do, do some gigs. So yeah, I booked us just a couple of gigs in some, in some bars there. And the best thing about it was, you know, we were pretty far from home, um, you know, 400 miles or something. That's nothing to you guys, but, um, to us, it's the length of the country. Um, and, but we didn't have to worry about bringing audience in cause it's the fringe. There's, you know, There's millions of people there. Right. So the places were packed out and it was amazing. And, you know, and, and it, it got us a foot in the door in these places cause you, you probably can relate once you, um, once you play at a venue once you're like four times more likely to get gigs there because they know who you are. Right. You got to get a foot in the door somehow. So that, that was it. But that's the biggest, uh, that's the biggest adventure we've had. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite something. 
It's uh, it's interesting to me because I feel like UK and Europe and really the rest of the world, they're way more interested in, uh, in actual music, like American pop radio for the most part is just shit. Like <laughs> it's, it's shit. There are some great, like Harry Styles, he gets played a lot on American pop radio here. I like his music. He's good. And there's, there's a couple other people, but for the most part, it's just like, and Nashville spits out its own particular bullshit brand of it, where it's uh pop country, where it's really just pop music with country accents. And they're talking about pickup trucks. Oh man. Yeah. It's, it's not good. It's, it's people like Luke Bryan and, and all of that, you know, that's, that's definitely an aspect of Nashville, but like, as far as the U S goes, we, we don't have even great radio stations here. I mean, I'm lucky again, I live in Nashville. So there's like an indie rock station. There's a, a jazz station. There's a great oldie station, but a lot of the other places you go in the U S there, there's not that it's almost like devoid of musical culture. And it's just all these corporations that are constantly shitting out these very mediocre acts who disappear in six months time, a year's time. Right. Yeah. I, I get that. I think we, we get a lot of that here too, to be honest, but I always just wonder if it's, if it's that bad, how does it get an audience? They have to get, I feel like they have to get something right. You have to find some way of crediting them with something here that you can take from. And I'm, you know, that that's, that's the approach I take now. Cause I, you know, the, you can, you can get mad at them all you like, but yeah, they, uh, for sure. they run off with all of, all of the cash. So yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to kind of look at it because, and not to be like a jaded a musician, but so much of it is, is truly nepotism. It's like Billie Eilish, her parents worked in the industry, her brothers, her producer, they had all of these connections and I'm, I'm not diminishing the quality of what they do. Cause I think what they do is good. But that's yeah. a very common story. And, and even in Nashville, like Taylor Swift and all her bullshit, like the way that she went number one uh, with her first record, whenever she started blowing up when she was still doing country music, her mm-hmm. dad bought like a million copies or whatever it was and just spent the money and bought her way into the music business. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. That's, yeah. I mean, that's it's, impressive. It, it is impressive, but it's, it's dirty, dude. But there are, yeah, people, yeah. there are people here, like the black keys are here and they're, they're like legitimate. Jack white's here. He's legitimate. Um, and even some of the country people here who are actually good, like Chris Stapleton is great. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his music. Sturgill Simpson doesn't live in Nashville anymore. Do you ever listen to Sturgill? Have you checked out his music before? No, no. He's amazing, dude. He's, he's, he's done uh, five records and each one of them is kind of different. His first one's a straight country record. His second one is kind of psychedelic country. His third one, very Memphis inspired, like a soul record. And then his fourth one, you should check out cause it has a lot of great keyboard parts in it, but it's a rock record. Um, okay. but he's kind of famous for talking shit about the Nashville music industry and all that. And he's kind of seen as the, the new outlaw rebel or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to kind of see it. Cause I see it firsthand a lot. You know, I'm not directly involved in anything. I'm really like a, uh, 
a pirate ship sailing the waters here in Nashville, just on an Island doing my own thing and soaking up all the fucking resources that are here. I have the benefit of all these great players here. Oh yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's interesting as, as time goes on to you. Cause like the older I get, like, I would say I'm like, okay at the social media thing, but you have these 20 year olds coming up now who are just TikTok, 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 TikTok. And that's how music is really starting to blow up now and go, goes number one is it yeah. goes viral on TikTok, Then it gets played on the radio. Yeah, exactly. It's the whole Kate Bush thing, isn't it? That, yeah, that was, yeah. the, that's the biggest example, right? That whatever that song is that hit number one. Yeah. That's, that's so weird. I wonder if she saw that coming at all. No, you know, she just woke up one morning. It was just like, Oh, hang on. <laughs> well, the other thing is like getting placements in a TV show, like stranger things like Kate Bush had never gone number one prior to that. And even now, if I get my car, wait three or four songs and that Kate Bush song comes on. Yeah. I mean, um, am I going to be the one to say it's not even, I don't like the song. I don't know. I didn't think it was that good. And I didn't even know it was like, I've heard plenty of Kate Bush before. I'd never heard that one. I don't know. It didn't really. Yeah. I I feel like a lot of the songs that TikTok is responsible for blowing up aren't, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be recognized at all if, if it wasn't for that, you know, they've, it's, it's been a funny collection of songs that have made it, um, you know, out of, out of the, the melting pot there. Yeah. Well, it's, everything now is so instant and there are these viral moments. It's it like going viral is the new 15 minutes of fame, basically. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so strange. Um, I'm trying to think of any, any TikTok um, songs that have caught on that. I actually thought I, you know, I was actually grateful to TikTok for um, bringing me to, I can't, I can't think of any yet, but um yeah, I'll, th- um, I'll, I'll think on that one. There's a bunch of stuff that I, uh, that I do like that came from TikTok. Like I, I like Doja Cat. I think she's fantastic. Um, but a lot of the music that kind of blows up on TikTok, of course, being a bass player, I noticed it's a lot of bass heavy music. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool. What's the one that's like, um, Oh, the people use they they like um for, for um it's like bunch of snapshot it's like snapshot compilations and the music's getting quicker and quicker and I can't remember what the song's called it's like world's smallest violin or something like that I need to I need to find it but yeah um that that's the only one that springs to mind that that was like that for me but yeah it's it's a funny place I mean what what makes me laugh is running into um accounts that you know, other musicians I know have made on TikTok and seeing them sort of try and latch on to the, you know, the, the viral trends. And I don't know, there's, so, there's something so cringe about it. I tried it as well, you know, and, and I just look back on it a week later and I'm like, oh man, I really, I really did try and um, sell out there. <laughs> hey man, you know, the way I see it, we got to feed ourselves. We're trying to do music for our careers as much shit as I do talk, I do think there is something to be said for knowing how to utilize social media properly. It's just funny when you, you see someone like Paul Stanley and he is doing a tick TikTok trend. 
you know, yeah. or something, something like that, you know, it's, it's just like, do you actually want to do this? Or is someone from your label or management just being like, yo, this is what's right now. Yeah. I love it when it's really obvious that it's just a PR department. I, I love that. Um, what also cracks me up. I don't know if this is more of a, more of an English thing, but like there's a, there's a couple of football teams in this country who've made TikTok accounts where they just, um, uh, make fun of like teams they've just beaten and stuff and put like funky sound effects on the goals they scored. Oh, that, really? I don't know why I find that so funny. Like that has me in stitches. Yeah. There's this one called Swindon town FC. I would recommend it. Like it's, it's just so great. They, they've got no shame. They just, they just don't just on. talk shit. Yeah. It's so great. <laughs> That's my favorite bit of TikTok. Well, dude, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Where can people find you at? Oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you for your time. You can, um, you can find us on Instagram, um, at John motors underscore. Um, or you can find us on Spotify. We've now got our EP and uh, our album horsepower on there. Um, we've got some stuff on YouTube or on Facebook. We're all over the net and it's going to keep, uh, it's going to keep growing hopefully. Yeah. We're just, uh, plugging away. Awesome, dude. Thank you so much for joining me. Here is reprise off the new hit record horsepower <laughs> by John motors. Thank you. Thank you.